Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Cheryl Strayed in conversation with Carolyn Cook. Cheryl Strayed is known for a writing style that's at once disarming, honest, warm, and utterly genuine. Her memoir, Wild, is an account of her personal struggle to survive and make sense of her shattered life in the wake of her mother's death. This conversation, which explores the lives, loves, writings and secrets of Cheryl Strayed, was recorded on February 3rd, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website www.ciis.edu slash podcast. to be collecting questions from the audience for a Q&A at the end. Um, so that's probably why like 80% of the people are here because they have a burning need to be and to meet Dear Sugar. So um, I will solve all of your problems by the end of the night. <laughs> she solved mine already, so I'm done. Um, so at about 7.30, I'm going to remind you that you have a note card in your lap, you should, and um, if you have a question that you'd like to bring forward, please just uh, uh, fill out the note card, write your question, and pass it to the end of your aisle, and someone will pick them up and deliver them to us about quarter to eight, I think. Perfect. Okay, so you'll be ready for that, Cheryl? I'm, I'm yes. Okay, great. I'm great. always ready to hear other people's <laughs> secrets, especially. It's really fun. It's unbelievably fun to get people's letters like that. So yeah, write, write down your, your questions. It doesn't have to be advice questions, obviously. Yeah, it can questions be about whatever. Any kind. Yeah. You can just answer anything. Anything, yeah. One time, um, a couple months ago, I was in Pasadena, and somebody asked me what my opinion was of, of women wearing overalls. So. <laughs> what do you think? Well, what I observed was that basically I love overalls because anything that's basically a curtain with pants, you know, is, works for me. So, yeah, no, I'm pro overalls on women. Did you have anything to do with the scene in the movie Wild where Laura Dern, playing your mother, is wearing, I mean, she really rocks this overall jumper, kind of. It's just the weirdest outfit. But I think it's a moment where you see this character who's sort of trapped in this crap house with these two kids who are increasingly aware that they live in a crap house and the deck is stacked against them. And she's doing dishes and singing in this overall jumper. Was that your idea? And, and a black um, tank top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, do you know the answer to this, or are you really no. just asking that? It's so sweet. It's a, such a wonderful um, question. It touches me, actually. Um, because, yeah, I had a, I, you know, there really is a story behind that. Um, Laura Dern, so played my mom. How many of you have seen the movie? Yes. 
So Laura Dern um, played my mom, and Laura, as you know, is like this six foot tall blonde who weighs like 90 pounds. And my mom was five feet tall and brunette. And her whole life, she wanted to be a, a tall, willowy, blonde person. And um, so, you know, now I always think, God, if she, if I could say one thing to my mom now, it would be, Laura Dern plays you in a movie, you know? <laughs> and she would just be so amazed with that. But so Laura and I were, um, you know, we had, I, I, I talked to all the actors a lot um, because they all portrayed real people. And what was so amazing to me is how much they all cared, you know, about the people they were portraying, but especially Reese and Laura, um, especially, you know, with Laura, the stakes were really high. I cared so much about the, the way that my mom was portrayed in the movie. And um, we, we were just, I was talking to Laura about my mom, and I showed her my favorite picture of my mother, which, which I think you can probably find somewhere on the internet. And um, it's, which is amazing that that picture is on the internet, um, because it was, it was my mom standing at the kitchen sink, and it's, a, you know, she's looking this way, you know, a side shot, and she's wearing these denim overalls that she wore all the time. And they were full of like holes and you know but she just wore these denim overalls and she always wore all summer she would wear underneath these overalls a black um strapless um bathing suit and she, in minnesota you know, there's lakes everywhere and she was always like so no where, wherever we are i can always just take off my overalls and go swimming another <laughs> argument for overalls and, uh, <laughs> so i i went so i gave so i told laura this story and I gave Laura um, my, what she wears in the movie. She has, if you look very closely, she has a turquoise ring on that was my mother's, and it fit Laura perfectly. And she has this brass bracelet that was my mother's in the 70s, you know? My mother, you know? And so she wore those both in the movie. And um, she went to the wardrobe person the next day and said, you have to find me some denim overalls and um, a black tube top. And um, <laughs> she wore it in that really important scene with, with Reese in their kitchen. And um, I, when I saw that, and you know, I, they, that's the scene they kind of, they played it at the, I went to the Oscars uh -huh. last year, uh -huh. which is also really Amazing. bizarre. Yeah. And, um, and you know, they played that scene and it just completely blows my mind. I was like, there is my mother. I mean, there's Laura Dern dressed yeah. as my mother, yeah. you know? So yeah, that's where it came from. I think, who knew that we would start with overalls and, you know, I mean, Well, I think um, one of the really interesting things is about your novel, Torch, which I remember reading when it came out in 2005 and just returned to it, and um, you're right, it does hold up. It's, it's a really oh, good novel, you. beautiful novel, and I think part of what's so beautiful about it is that it's based in true stuff. It's kind of uninventable on every page. The um, emotional content, the charge, the perversity. I think what I like best about it, about all your work really, that I think it's rooted less in, uh, this is so dangerous to say at CIS, which is a school of psychology, but it's less rooted in psychology than in the mystery of human perversity mm -hmm. and um, the details of the novel that make us believe this whole experience are are so vivid. Um, I mean, there's a the green pantsuit that um, the green pantsuit that uh, Claire wears when her mother, I think, gets the news that she has cancer. And this pantsuit is so vividly described. I'm, I'm speaking to you directly because I bet a tenth of the people here have read the novel, but you should. Um, there's I kind think of three people in America have read it. No. <laughs> 
it's worth it's it's a beautiful book and a really different telling of part of the story. But there's even like a bow in the hair, and you just sort of feel this mother who Laura Dern really captures in the same way I imagined her yeah. novel. Um, as someone who's sort of counting jams and making quilts out of old shirts and sewing pantsuits, and there's this mixture of kind of tenderness and love and, and sometimes a sort of humiliation before this overpowering mother, especially for the son. And um, a lot of those themes come through in Wild, and there's yeah. just a few things that return, like the green jello from the hospital. Yeah. Um, and I think the movie must be interesting because you get to bring forward the things or the images that maybe propelled the book in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so interesting for you to, for me to hear you say that because I haven't read Torch in so many years that I forget what's even in there. And, um, and you know, the, 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 com the complicated thing about Torch, so it's my first book, it's a novel, and... Um, it really did. It really did come from fiction. You know, I studied fiction. I have an, a master, an MFA in fiction. My my biggest influences were, you know, our fiction writers. I would say, um, and I never. Sometimes people will say, "Well, why didn't you? Why why wasn't Torch just a memoir?" And I'm like, "Well, because Torch isn't a memoir. You know, it's so fictional, mm -hmm. and yet and yet it's driven by so many very true and very real things that were essentially that I was haunted by. And so you mentioned this green this pantsuit that my mother made for me, and um, and I was, and and I what it was such a powerful kind of symbol to me of who she was and who we were mm -hmm. um, that then it appears again in Wild. Mm -hmm. So you see the green pantsuit mm -hmm. in both Torch and Wild and they're both true and they're you know slightly in different form yeah. but they're both true. And um, my mom was a great seamstress and she sewed that for me and I didn't really like it very much and I was you know, I mean, you know, I'm like 22, you know, who the fuck wears a green pantsuit, you know? And um, I wish I had that pantsuit now. I mean, what, where did it go? It would be so cool. I would be like, you know, have you noticed now that people are wearing like the, the, the young kids now, they're wearing like the high-waisted jeans as if they invented them? <laughs> I was like, what's going on? They're wearing like the jeans I wore when I was in high school. Do you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Is anyone wearing those jeans right now? Is there any hipsters? You guys didn't make those up, just so you know. Um, We're still pretty deep into skinny jeans here, I think. Well, no, no, is this... Okay, back me up. Are they, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay? It's happening. You just haven't noticed it yet. Okay, we're, we're just sort of behind the times. But no, I mean, there's this hip bagel place near my... And my husband are like, why are all these girls wearing, like, the lead jeans that come up here and I'm like I don't know like you know what's going on and I think it's cool I think they think it's cool uh -huh. but um I think that's because of you I mean you're so cool <laughs> that's right that's that like they're you know they remembered that I wore lead jeans in high school no but, um, but back to the so the pantsuit you know I wore this as a way to say to my mother I love you so much yeah. Like, and I'm going to, so I see, I'm wearing this thing you made for me. You know how you go to visit somebody and you're like, they gave you a necklace and you're going to like wear that necklace or you're right. going to show them that you, right. that you, that you appreciate the gift they gave you. And, and in the book, I think, I don't know in which book, um, I say, <laughs> maybe it's in this essay, the love of my life, I say, I wore it as like a penance and offering mm -hmm. 
you know, a talisman to sort of protect us against what was going to be true, which was that, so I wore it this day that we found out she was going to die. And, you know, I never, that day is so vividly with me that I just, I can remember everything about that day, you know. So there, it just keeps reappearing and appearing, you know, in my work, I guess. Well, it's interesting. I, I love that, um, what you're bringing up, the difference between fiction and, I wouldn't even call it memoir. I mean, it's just this beautiful, you know, brutally real, vivid stuff that's not confessional particularly, but it's incredibly vulnerable and wild. And Dear Sugar, I think you're telling so much of, of your own life story. You're making yourself vulnerable. And yeah, I think the Dear Sugar... Um, uh, the columns together can be taken as kind of a performance piece about the art of writing, about sort of the role of empathy, the role of vulnerability, the relationship between the reader and the writer. And I wonder if you could talk as, as someone who's written a novel, has written a memoir, has overseen and been part of developing the script for the movie, and as a kind of postmodern feminist advice columnist, what's the difference between those forms? Is it, is it a big difference? Are you a different person in each of those roles? It's such a complicated, I mean, we could spend like a month discussing That's all right. that, we'll you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just so, it's, it's such a big question. Um, and, and there are two kind of opposing answers. And the first one is that I always, like when I teach writing, I teach prose writing. And whether you want to be in my class writing a novel or a memoir, I could, I could care less. Like the same principles apply to both forms and you always have to have skin in the game and you always have to make yourself or your characters feel like real people and you always have to you know do all of these same things and um and so in some ways like that's that was you know I, like I said I trained as a fiction writer but then then I started writing stories that just happened to be absolutely true and I don't need to say that they are the same because obviously with Torch when I ran into some sort of trouble, I could say, well, you know, maybe we should have her get pregnant, or maybe, you know, he could stab in the throat, or, you know, like, anything can happen. And in Wild, it was like, what, what, you know, what happened to me, and how do I, how do I use it? What do I pay attention to? What do I show you? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is a lot of people, when I'm teaching memoir, or talking to people about the memoirs, but, you know, I always say to them, you think you know the story, because it's your life, but you're mistaken. You do not know the story. And you don't know the story until you've written it. Because writing it requires you to ask deeper questions, to face um, more complicated truths, to notice things that you've sort of forgotten to notice. And you know the endeavor of using your life as, as material for literature requires all of that stuff. In the same way that you would construct a fictional character, you know that so much stuff about a fictional character, as you know, um, as you know, I've been your biggest fan for many years. I first met Carolyn in 2001 when I was just like a little baby graduate student, and at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and she was this exalted fellow with this beautiful collection of stories that I admired so much. But what you have to do is really, um, you know, make those people feel vivid and alive, you know. And, and when you're, you know, when you experience your own life, you, you experience it as somebody who's vivid and alive. Mm -hmm. But, you, but that, tra that doesn't directly translate to the page. Um, you have to do all of that work of craft. And so, you know, I had to do that in, in these different forms. And, of course, each form taught me something new. Um, memoir taught me how to to do that sort of deep work, 
of, of looking, you know, understanding that I don't even know the plot of my own life. Right. Um, Dear Sugar was such an experience. I always say, like, I learned more for, as a writer, um, writing the Dear Sugar column than I did either in Wild or Torch because it was for the first time that I was actually speaking directly to one reader. One, one person right. wrote me a letter and I wrote them a letter back. That's what that exchange was. And to do that in such a way, you know, the way that I just decided to sort of give it the full force of my life, mm -hmm. in the full force of my writing, um, in some ways I felt like that, that direct exchange allowed me to tap in to a kind of higher register than I'd ever dared to tap into mm -hmm. with either book, with my, either of my previous books. Because the, the conceit with both Torch and Wild is I know you're their reader. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you this story, but I'm going to pretend that you're not there. Right. And with Sugar, it was the exact opposite. It was, I'm going to tell you the story, and you are sitting right there, and I'm looking you right in the eye. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about that, of course, is I wasn't looking anyone in the eye. Like, nobody knew who I was, and I didn't know who right. anyone was. Right. And so, but, but yet, in the, in the midst of that sort of anonymous exchange, um, I was perhaps more revealing than I'd ever been before. Yeah, I wondered about that. It feels, reading the Dear Sugar columns, that, you know, first of all, there's sort of, um, uh, they're so authentic. And, um, and I wouldn't say, the word isn't irreverent, they're really profane. And the advice is unexpected. And it's so true that it's like a punch in the gut, you know, every Thank time. You. It's, Thank you. It's fantastic advice, <laughs> real great advice. And, um, uh, and I wondered if you were able to access that quickly. Like, I mean, I don't know how you write, but for me, you know, it's sort of a process of sitting painfully in front of my computer. You know, it's, it's sort of agony. It's kind of an agony I've grown to love, but it's really hard. But, you know, writing emails, like 100 emails a day or answering problems for students, it's like I just know, you know, yeah. it's, like I'm just, it's right there. And I felt reading Dear Sugar that you had this kind of access to this higher register. Is that true, or did you agonize over the letters? I agonized always, but I usually would write them. Um, it wasn't the same as writing an email. I mean, I know what you're talking about. Um, it, was, it was like sitting down to write an essay every time. And, 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 and I didn't mean for that to happen. That sort of happened by accident. You know, because when I, when I started writing the column, um, nobody was reading it. And um, <laughs> so, like, who gives a fuck, you know? Like, and um, I was like, I don't know what you should do. And, um, and then, <laughs> no, but, I, but I was like, okay, I'm going to just really try. You know? But then people started paying attention. And, and, and especially once I wrote, like, some really big ones, like, yeah. some really, like, you know, like told stories from my life and all this right. stuff. Then it was like that's what that was what everyone expected. I could never just be like, I think you should do this, that, and the other thing. You know, um, I couldn't be. You know, most advice columnists that's what they do because because that's what an advice column is, right? Right. Um, and so, but I was writing essays. But I will say, so it was always hard. But I will say, mo like almost all of those columns were written, um, you know, in the twelve hours before they were published. So. <laughs> Like almost, like 95% of them. Um, There's hardly one of them that was written. I mean, you know, if it, you know, and the, the ones that weren't written right before they were published were all written like within a week they were published. You know, I mean, I would usually um, be just completely up against it and I would stay up all night on like Wednesday night. I would put my kids to bed and stay up all night long writing and I would be finishing it by the wee hours in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then I would, you know, wake up with my, you know, my kids would get up and then I would read it a couple more times 
and then I would send it to the rump, you know, the editor Isaac at the Rumpus, and then he would put it up on the website at noon. And often I would be like, you know, right up until, and um, and it was mostly because I was busy and and also just reluctant to write because writing sucks, and um, because it's so hard. But but what I did do is I would think about the letters. So before I began an answer, what I would do is I would think. Which letter am I going to answer this week? And I would let it roll around in my brain. And then I would have an idea. I would have an intuitive sense that a certain story needed to be told in response to this right. question. And usually I didn't know why that story needed to be told. So I would just trust, and this has become like a technique I use all the time. It's just like trust that. Trust the part of you that knows even though it doesn't know. Trust the unknowing. Right. Um, and write, you know, that's what intuition is, right? And so, so that's that's where the fertile ground is for me. So to say, well, I don't know why I'm going to tell this story about this when this person's asking about that, but I'm going to tell it and then write it, and then whatever happens when I'm writing it will, you know, the, the connection will reveal itself, and it almost always did. But so I would write it over and over and over and over again over those twelve hours that I worked on it. But it would be, it, it all happened very close proximity, which is not the advice. Um, I give to other writers. That, I mean, that's not right. That's not like the way you're supposed no, to write. No, it's usually disastrous to do that because then you're an idiot and you wrote something stupid and everyone saw it. You know, I mean, so it's and so you have to just like. And I think that for whatever reason, that form did have, like you know I wouldn't ever do that with like other kind of writing. I can't explain it. It's just well, I, mean, I guess I just did. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I have a couple of examples because they're so interesting, and maybe this is a moment to remind you, if you have a question, um, it can be any kind of question, um, and the answers are, are um, unexpected, too. Um, so I think, I think someone will be collecting the cards in like five minutes or so, so you still have a little time to organize them. Um, uh, in the introduction to Tiny Beautiful Things, Steve Almond um, uh, notes one of the columns that put you on the map, and... Um, to share that story to give people an idea. I think the podcast has to have a beep feature. Um, uh, it's a podcast. We can say whatever we oh, want. Oh, we can't. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know anything. Like high waist and pounds podcast. I feel like a dinosaur. Um, uh, so We're getting some high waisted jeans tomorrow, you and I. <laughs> That'd be great. So in, in one of the early, in one of the, I probably still have them, you know. Um, in one of the early comments, someone called uh, WTF writes a call, you know, writes a letter saying, "What the fuck? What's it all about? What the fuck?" And your response begins, "My father's father made me jack him off when I was three and four and five. I wasn't any good at it. My hands were too small, and I couldn't get the rhythm right, and I didn't understand what I was doing. I only knew I didn't want to do it. Knew it made me feel miserable and anxious in a way so sickeningly particular." that I can feel that same particular sickness rising this very minute in my throat. Um, and I think with, with that response, um, you immediately establish um, with the reader um, a vulnerability that so exceeds by, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, exponential, you know, points, um, what the reader is asking, his stupid... Right little yeah. existential question um, is just blown out of play by your willingness to reveal and right. empathize on a human level 
And um, I've never heard of an advice columnist doing that, which is why it's hard for me even to think of it as advice, but more as sort of a way of being in the world, if you dare. Um, and how, I mean, you're sort of like that, but were you always like that? Yeah, you know, I, I am, you know, I, I've always been like that, which has been, you know, sometimes um, troublesome to people. I mean, you know, like, it, 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 it maybe makes some people feel uncomfortable or embarrasses them. You know, my mother would always say um, to, to her, you know, when her friends would come over, she would say, you know, you can only ask them three, each three questions, you know, because I would always be delving, you know, what is the... You know, I would, like, if if there was a couple, I would try to corner them each separately and be like, why do you love your wife? <laughs> why do you, like, why do you really love her? And, you know, and I, I would say, that, I would ask that when I was seven or eight, you know? And, and, it, and it's totally what I've been interested in my whole life. Like, what's really true. Right. Not, not, not who are you, but who are you really? And, like, what are you really thinking? What are you... Why do you do what you do? And when I did that WTF answer, I mean, I was absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified to uh, publish that. And I remember, you know, very much, you know, almost deleting that question because it's not a question. And then what I realized is like, okay, well, what if part of what I want to do here as an advice columnist is like to give an answer that's not an answer and to answer questions that aren't questions, you know? Like, that, that, like what if we just go underneath all of that right. and right. just, like, tell true stories? Right. And so I think that what that guy was saying to me when um, he said to me, WTF, WTF, mm -hmm. is that in some ways it was like he wasn't, like, the, the, like he was, like, a jokester. Mm -hmm. And that everything was just sort of a joke. joke. Right. And I just wanted to say, like, everything's not a joke, and, and you are not a joke, and I am not a joke, mm -hmm. and we're not going to joke here in this Dear Sugar column. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it was for my, for me too, like I was telling myself, you know, this is actually serious what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, I want to do this yeah. seriously. And even to this day, you know, I still have to kind of, def you know, people, when they don't read the Dear Sugar column, but they know that I've written this advice column, I mean, even some friends of mine, they'll be like, oh, that little thing that you did. You know, and it's like because they, they, they think they know what an advice column is, right? right? Which is just a sort of it's not a, it's not even a literary form, right? It's just this side kind of thing um, that we read at the back of the paper next to the bridge. I mean, not that anyone reads the paper anymore, but um, you know, did, did that remember with the high waisted jeans and the newspaper and Dear Abby, yeah. Dear Abby, and so I wanted to just try to really push the limits of that, and so that entailed pushing the limits of everything. Yes, you know. Yes. Yeah. And also, you know, I do think for me, like the absolutely most cathartic stuff in my life has is, is been about story. People telling me their stories, mm -hmm. me telling my own. Mm -hmm. And then that exchange where you, you know, I love that about everything. I, I mean, that's the power of art. I think that's the power of books. Is that wonderful quote from Jim Lahiri that Britta read, you know, that it's, if you tell me who you are, really, mm -hmm. um, something transformative happens almost always, mm -hmm. almost always, um, because you 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 stop talking about like the weather and you start talking about what it means to be human, mm -hmm. you know. Which, for better or worse, I mean, you know, sometimes my kids will be like, um, you know, we were at dinner like a couple nights ago, and I was like, 
telling them, like, do you guys realize that maybe in a hundred years, like, even the whole planet like, will just be completely destroyed and humans won't exist? And, um, and, um, because of climate change, you know? And my, and my, my son's like, can we never just have, like, a fun conversation? <laughs> Does it always have to be, like, stuff like this, you know? And I mean, you know, it's like that same old kind of thing. But, and so we do get to have fun sometimes, but not very often. <laughs> Well, I think we were talking earlier about the balance of darkness and light, and, and Wild is both a really dark book um, about coming out of a, a wild grief um, that included a lot of uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of, you know, hideous casual sex. And um, some of it was fun. Some of it looked fun. Some of it didn't look fun. You know, some didn't the movie fun. made it work, look so much worse than it was. But, uh, <laughs> in, the book, in the book, it looks more fun. Um, I never did have sex with two guys in an alley. Um, <laughs> but that's not in my life. I, I'm half that in the future, perhaps. But um, <laughs> but but the feeling of um, the darkness mixed with the lightness—that there's horror and there's humor—and mm -hmm. um, I think your irreverence about the sort of tropes that are supposed to, you know, cause us to uh, judge and to feel that we're in, you know, an area of trauma. I mean, certainly the the letter, um, your response that I just read, you know, is is incredibly traumatic and probably has triggered like 50 people here. But I think what you're doing um, is is addressing frontally. The, the trauma that we all have and inviting with a kind of radical permission to engage about our experience and not just to be horrified or to have the usual kinds of responses to you know sad news or horrible news or terrible self-destructive things but to find the humor and the horror where we don't always expect them and I think to be able to do that you have to be someone who's able to almost entirely reserve judgment all the time um, that must be the one thing advice columnists, well, they don't all do that, but you do as an advice columnist. You've never... I'm not sure any... dear Abby did that, did she? You know, I think it's interesting because we do think of advice columnists as people who, you know, their job is to essentially have an opinion, right? And to, and, and what I always tried to do was have an opinion um, that, that wasn't connected to being judgmental. Mm -hmm. You know, I use this phrase in one of the sugar comps called it's unconditional positive regard. And I think that that's a really helpful guide to me. You know, as you know, now I have this to sugar podcast. Um, there, there have been some letters that I've thought, gosh, you know, like this is kind of hard. You know, I, I you know, and, and just sometimes even saying that phrase to myself, unconditional positive regard, it re sort of reminds me that's that's the vantage point with which I'm gonna view every person who writes to me. And, and when I let that spill over into my actual life too, it's, it's, it, it, it makes things so much more joyful. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's not, you're not saying that you don't ever say to somebody, I think you made a mistake, or I think you're thinking wrong about this, mm -hmm. but you're saying I'm on your side and I hold you in unconditional positive regard. That no matter what you say to me about who you are or what you've done mm -hmm. or what you're thinking, I'm not going to have a negative opinion of, of you because of that. And I think that that's so great. And I think right. so much of uh, that, you know, again, so much of, you know, telling stories, um, you know, by way of Dear Sugar or Wild or, or any of your books, our books, 
you know, what, what you're ultimately doing is saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you like who this one person is, this, whether it be a fictional character or, or you're, you, the narrator. And I'm going to tell you as much of the truth about myself as I can bear to tell. And most of us, if we did that, like if I brought each of you on stage and made you do that, we've locked the doors, we're going to be here for a week. Um, <laughs> the thing that would scare you about that is that, that you would, if, you, if we really knew who you were, we wouldn't like you. Um, we would judge you, we would, we would see your flaws, we would see um, where you don't, you know, that, that, that your, your sort of external self that you're showing the world is in contradiction to the internal reality. And what I found over and over again is when you do that, when you do that, which is what we do in writing, I mean, writing is essentially you get to be inside somebody else's mind and body, right? Um, when you do that, the result is almost always other people say, that's what I'm right. like too. Right. And I would have never known it. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have never known it if um, I just looked at you and made my judgments about you based on what I could see. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, this even happens about mundane things. You know, I don't think writing about my grief over my mother is, is so um, taboo or, or, or extraordinary. But I can tell you, people all over the world have written to me and said, you know, I felt so alone in my grief until I read what you wrote about your mom. Yeah. And what that tells me is not that I wrote so well, but that we have like a, a cultural problem, you know, about how to talk about grief. The fact that it's a revelation, like that what I had to say about my grief is a revelation, um, tells me that we've failed to talk honestly about grief, right. you know? And I think that you can apply that to any number of subjects, right. you know? I have an example. Okay. From Wild, um, uh, 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 you're remembering your mother uh, when she's ill with cancer. And right, I dream. It's just a barrel of laughs. That, I know the, the sort of things you've chosen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I know. It's like a therapy session for me. We're going to revisit the darkest moments of your life, Cheryl. I know this is really dark. I'm sorry. On stage, and I'm sold out for stage. Okay. I didn't think of that. That's okay. <laughs> I get it all the time. This is so moving. This is such a moving passage because I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's about grief that, that we don't express. So, can you bear it? I can bear it. Okay. Okay. I don't know if you can bear it, but here it goes. I dreamed of her incessantly. The mother is dying of cancer. She's in the hospice. Um, in the dreams, I was always with her when she died. It was me who would kill her again and again and again. She commanded me to do it. And each time, I would get down on my knees and cry, begging her not to make me, but she would not relent. And each time, like a good daughter, I ultimately complied. I tied her to a tree in our front yard and poured gasoline over her head, then lit her on fire. I made her run down the dirt road that passed by the house we built and then ran over her with my truck. I dragged her body, caught on a jagged piece of metal underneath until it came loose. And then I put my truck in reverse and ran over her again. Um, and when I read that, I actually just wept. I mean, because I felt um, not that you were killing your mother, <laughs> but that it was so true about the way the body and the mind absorb mm -hmm. reality. Um, and I think it speaks to what you were saying earlier, that we don't know our stories until we write. Um, I can't imagine that you 
kind of had that all figured out, that this is an expression of my grief or it's sort of a psychological, it's just what happens, I think. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, that, that happened to me so much for so many years. Like, I really would vividly dream of not just killing my mom, but like really viciously murdering my mother. And um, I suffered so, I suffered so much from that because not only did I have to experience that in such a visceral way, that, that killing of my mom, but I also had to wake up and think, man, I'm like so fucked up. I'm so fucked up that I'm having this dream, these dreams over and over and over right. again. Right. And you know, how would my life have been different if somebody actually, the day my mom died, or as my mom was dying, was actually telling me the truth? You know, the thing about grief, what we tell people who are grieving, we're like, um, we, we console them by trying to sort of um, tamp down their sorrow, right. sort of put a blanket over it to comfort them. But there's nothing comfortable about losing somebody who feels who's essential to you. You know, there's nothing comfortable about it. And, and I wish, you know, I, I would have so much rather had somebody come to me and say, you know, you might spend the next three years dreaming of your mom every night that you're choking her to death or stoning her or, you know, all of those things. And that I would have finally met somebody who then spoke the truth to me. Right. You know, when, when people say, well, time will heal this wound. or I know they mean well, but I much rather would have somebody say, you will suffer for the rest of your life. Because that's actually the truth. Mm -hmm. That's actually the truth. Mm -hmm. If you really love somebody truly, deeply, madly, and they die, you will suffer their loss for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you can't move on and drive and be happy and do all kinds of stuff, but there's still that core of suffering. Mm -hmm. And you have to find a way to carry it with you, which is an opposition to so much of what we, how we try to console right. people with grief. And so the consolations serve to be isolation, mm -hmm. exacerbation, mm -hmm. a sense of this really is just me. I really am alone in this. And so, you know, I, I think that for me, just personally, like the, the thing that gives me the most um, pride is just knowing that like, that I've spoken mm -hmm. by like just simply speaking out of that voice of grief for so many people who relate to that, mm -hmm. who've had that feeling. Have any of you in the room, are you any of you relating to what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, I think the reason it made me weep was that um, it made me feel like less of a freak in the world. Yeah. And, uh, even though I know I'm not a freak, you know, really. Right. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a kind of permission to be human. Yeah. And, um, and, and really a gift, I think. Um, but your work Thank is you. full of stuff like that. It's just full of stuff like that. And um, uh, I, I don't know, what haven't we talked about that... You want to talk about? But how pretty, we about pretty soon you're going to be um, giving advice. I think. I think that. Um, well, you know, you did mention the, the. I mean, we've been so dark and heavy. Um, you did mention. I mean, one of the things that I definitely uh, played with a lot in both Your Sugar and Wild is is that as like serious as those things I, I was writing, but I also wanted to be funny. You know, I tried really hard to be funny in Dear Sugar. I didn't always succeed. When I um, when I took over the column, that was my, because Steve Allman wrote it before, and he's so funny. That was my big worry. You know, so one of the things that has really come to me as a writer um, in, in my kind of in later years, is just like how important 
humor is in your work, and in some, so many ways that allows you to go deeper into those emotional places, you know? Um, I don't know if there's any, see, that's the thing about funny, there's nothing much to say about it. <laughs> well, I think, I think um, the, the ordeal in Wild itself, I mean, the naivete of, right. of Shalom, um, yeah, just being an idiot like it, I was. It's so hilarious. It's so hilarious. And, you know, the idea that the backpack will somehow absorb whatever you yes. buy because you got it at REI, so yeah. of course you're going to be able to. And um, I think the way you're willing to, you know, what's the, another thing I love about your work that is a little more in the light thing is that you're able to um, be self-deprecating without being self-loathing. And I think so often... It's hard for women to uh, be self-deprecating about their heroin use, say, without, right. you know, veering into self-worth. Right. And I thought you handled that really well. Thank I mean, you. I think, I think the, 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 you know, the slight, uh, the binge sexing and the brief, you know, dalliance with heroin were, were just, you know, they were what they were. Yeah. And um, so... I think because they are what they are. I mean, you know, I, I do think that women are particularly good at just going around their whole lives being like, oh, this terrible, you know, mistake I made. And even I say, like, I don't regret all that promiscuity. Like, some of it was fun. Some of it was not fun. Some of it, you know, it was educational. It was. It was educational. <laughs> and, um, no, really, right? Yeah. I mean, think about all, I mean, you never forget the lessons you learned the hard way. You never... You never forget those, and I think that they're so valuable. You know, sometimes people um, will be like, "Well, you know, now, like, don't you, you know, don't you wish that you had like known, like, not to bring so much stuff and like get the right kind of boots and all that stuff." I'm like, "No, not really, actually, because, because you know, I one of the great things about that experience of going backpacking by myself uh, was that you know I had to suffer the consequences of every decision mm -hmm. I made." Mm. And I also was, when things went well, I was the one who made that decision. Mm -hmm. I was the one who made it go well. Right. You know, and when things didn't go well, I was the one who had to mm -hmm. contend with that. And I think that there's something, well, I know there's something incredibly valuable about, about that. I think most people, at one point or another, have to go through that kind of crucible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, I just, it, what came into my mind when I was just saying that is I remember... Um, anyone who's ever given birth to a child knows that there's just like this thing where you're just like, you know, that, like, I am the only one who can get this baby out of my vagina, you know, and, um, and like, it's like so crazy, that feeling of like, oh my fucking God, you know, and it's just like, nothing, nothing, like, you just have to do it, I mean, it's like a thing, you know, that has to, and, um, it's, and, and it's so, and, and I think that's why women who are biological mothers will often say, oh, that was the most you know, spiritual experience of my life. And it was because a fucking head came out of your vagina. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, you had to do that thing. Even if it comes, ends up coming out of other places, you know, um, it's still, you had to contend along with this very um, urgent question. And, um, and, and solo backpacking is kind of like that too. Um, or traveling alone or and finding that like you're in a pickle or, you know, any number of things that we end up at the end of the day being alone with. Right. And I think that those things, like even if you make mistakes along the way, those are the things that teach you what you need to learn. Right. You know? 
life isn't about you know always protecting yourself, always making you know doing all the research and knowing everything in advance. Right. In our um, MFA programs, we have a three-unit course that takes artists to Burning Man for that reason. It's uh, we're the only only university in the country that does that. Do you guys take it to Burning Man? We do. We take a class to Burning Man to That's so perfect. Summer art. And, <laughs> and, I want to go to Burning Man. Well, you can come with us. The reason we do it, I think, is this exactly to replicate this experience of sort of a life as an artist is about going into a sort of indifferent, hostile desert, yeah. unprepared. With a you, lot of crazy hippies. You have a lot of, well, a lot of crazy gear that you might well, need, yeah. you know? And so you prepare. You have to bring everything, including your water, and your pack is heavy, and it's crazy, and you enter this realm, and um, you have your ordeal, and you're unprepared for it no matter yeah. what you brought, and you are humbled no matter what you do, and you make something, however small. Yeah. But I think those experiences are great, and it's just a sort of, you know, a small way we can do it together in, a, maybe you wouldn't call it an academic setting, but it's an incredibly rigorous yeah. practice. Um, and, uh, no, it's, it's, it's what, we're, what I replicated, what I realized when I was writing Wild, is that what I had done with my hike is what we have done throughout time, throughout all ancient time. What you guys are doing with the Burning Man thing is essentially make, make a rite of passage, yes, yes. make a, a, a sort of ceremony or a rite um, sort of passage that we, for whatever reason, I think you know, it's, it's sort of been really unhealthy for us as a society, that we've sort of left that behind. Yes. Yeah. But you know, all of those traditions that have gone across so many cultures and lasted for so much time, they always have these things in common. Mm -hmm. That it's like you're outside of your comfort zone, you often have a physical trial that you have to endure, and, you also, and, and you're, um, you're deprived. You're deprived of the things, um, sometimes even that you, that you think you need, mm -hmm. you know? And you have to find a way to survive you know, in this moment, in this new context. And it's almost always a great, I mean, unless you die, it's really great, you know? <laughs> right? Right? I mean, think about that. And this is why we're like, you want to, you know, and we, we do it in youth. I think we should do it again, Yeah. you know, in yeah. midlife. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to do something like this again um, at a certain passage of my life. Like what would you do? I, I, I think that this passage, because I am a mom, I think that that would, you know, um, that when my kids, you know, go off into the world in like a decade or so, um, that it will coincide with the time of my life that I'm shifting into something new. I'm 47. Mm -hmm. I'll be, you know, moving into the kind of, out of this sort of, you know, raising the kids and into mm -hmm. another era of my life that's a little more independent and free and promiscuous. I'm <laughs> um, teasing. My husband's not listening to this podcast, is he? Um, but you know, or just you know, again, going back to the self. Um, Sandra Singlow, uh, speaking of Burning Man, um, wrote this book called Mad Woman and the Volvo. Did any of you read it? Um, she's this. You know, she was happily married um, and had two kids, and she was like 49, and she went off to Burning Man, and suddenly had this like wild sex Tasmanian affair um, with this guy, a burning man, and then they both like left their spouses and broke up their lives and married each other and she realized it was that she was going through menopause that made her like go crazy. And um, but anyway, she wrote this whole I'm not I'm not explaining it very well, but she wrote this very 
this very deep and funny and interesting book that all starts with like sex at Burning Man. And, um, but it was essentially a rite of passage for her. And one of the things that she says is that, you know, she, so she researched menopause. Mm -hmm. And what she learned was that um, when you go through menopause, what you return to hormonally, what women return to, is what they were hormonally at like age 11, you know, before they started menstruating and so forth, you know? And so you return this kind of like girl, like wild girlish self, hormonally speaking. And so maybe that's when I'll have my sort of rite of passage when I'm sort of got the kids out of the nest and mm -hmm. stop having my period. <laughs> Sound good? What about you? Aren't you due for a little rite of passage? Yeah, another conversation. <laughs> Um, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, uh, who you're reading, what work inspires you these days, and kind of what, what, uh, what are you guys laughing about? <laughs> There's some joke down here in the audience that this happens. Okay, what, what inspires me? That's what I hate inspires. It's like, no. I mean, I, I think about all of the really terrific nonfiction that's being written right now, so I have an agenda with my question. It's like, it's like, I, I feel sometimes like, oh, it's so exhausting to think of writing a novel, you know? Right. Like, like there's so, it's almost like um, anything can be said, you know, now. And I think a lot of the reason for the novel has been historically that a lot of things couldn't be said, a lot of things women couldn't say, a lot of stories that couldn't be told because yeah. we were so careful. And you've sort of been part of making, you know, destroying all that. Anything can be said. So um, I wonder, you know, who you read as novelists and what nonfiction writers, what prose writers, what prose is exciting to you? Well, you know, one of the things that's happened in my, these last few years, um, is that just my reading life has been so um, essentially hijacked or taken over by you know, always reading for a purpose. Reading because I judged a contest, or reading because I judged a prize, or reading because, you know, I'm learning a book. And even if I enjoy that kind of reading, it's, it's, I've got a different relationship right. to it. There's like, it's attached to an expectation. Right. It's, it's attached to something I have to do, rather than um, just that kind of free, you know, when you read right. a book, and you're like, right. what's interesting about this? Right. So I'm stepping back into that. Um, right now, and I read a memoir that I read recently that I just really loved and admired is um, Bettyville by John by George Hodgman. <laughs> Did you read that book? There's so much good. I mean, there's so much good writing and so much mm -hmm. good nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, I was really, I was really taken by. It's. Have any of you read Bettyville? It came out earlier this, I guess, last year. One person has read it. <laughs> it's, it's a very. It's it's a quiet memoir about a, a man who goes home to live with his mother who's very old and, and not doing so well. And it's essentially just about, you know, his, I love those stories that are where the writer really does do that thing I just described where you're mm -hmm. actually inside the mind of somebody else. Mm -hmm. And there's no other form. I mean, I think that obviously music can do great things and film can do great things. But, you know, the, the thing that literature can do is, is interiority. I mean, right. like, like no other art form. Mm -hmm. Another book that I really loved recently was Catherine Lacey's novel. It's a debut novel. Um, I, I don't know who Catherine Lacey is. She's just this young woman who I like uh, her work. Um, it's called Nobody. It's one of those titles that I can never remember the day. Nobody what? Nobody's ever missing. <laughs> it's a really good book, isn't it? 
Isn't it so good? <laughs> so, like, no, I love, I love her, that book. It's really good. And, it, and, like, she goes around New Zealand. You get to go places. Um, and so that was really fantastic. Um, and I also, you know, recently, um, many years ago, I read... Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. Mm -hmm. You ever read that book? Mm -hmm. Have any of Yeah. So you know how you read a book when you're like 19 or 20 and then you get old and you're like, oh, that book probably sucks because I was so stupid when I read that book and I thought it was great. <laughs> and then you go back and you're like, oh my God. And it was so good. I mean, it's still really good. I remember a scene, I think, from that book where he's, um, Edward Abbey uh, is camping, sort of like Cheryl Strain. He's finally got a stove working. And he totally copied me. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah, and he's he's uh, he makes a, a giant steak on his camp stove and drinks a whole bottle of red wine and eats his steak. And um, as he's finishing his steak, a bear comes lumbering up to the campsite, and Edward Abbey gets up to shake the bear's hand. <laughs> Was this like a movie of Desert Solitaire? <laughs> Desert Solitaire, and he's just sort of drunk, but it's like he's so sort of like. Um, I think I'm just sort of drunk was probably a key yeah, 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 moment. Yeah. You know, just this kind of, there's someone there. It's like the scene, I don't remember it in the book, but in the movie of Wild, that little fox, um, you know, that comes up to the tent and Cheryl runs yeah. after and says, instead of being terrified by the fox, she's like, wait, don't go. Exactly. <laughs> the fox is running away. Yeah, that was an interesting part of the movie, actually, because those of you who read the book, um, did some of you read the book? Wild? <laughs> So I'm curious to know, I'll be curious, maybe I'll come up in some of your questions, but that, that translation, you know, obviously the book is mine and that was my vision and everything that I wrote was what I decided on. And then the film, you know, is in another artist's hands and even though I was involved in it and I weighed in, I also really stepped back and let, you know, said, you know, he, you have to have your vision. And so Jean-Marc Vallée, the director, he, he was really wanted to use the fox and essentially, like a, a slightly different way than it was written right. about it, right. you know, in a more sort of supernatural. Yeah. Um, was way. it a real fox in the movie, or was it like a hyper? You know, that's it's so interesting the things that people think about. Yeah. So that was really a fox in the movie, but a lot of people think that it wasn't um, for some reason that 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 I don't. I'm not sure exactly why they don't think it was. But I will say that the fox was weird in real life, like the real fox. And I think that that's what you're picking up on because um, <laughs> it's true. You know, also there was a real snake, and the real snake really actually bit somebody. Make it in the movie too. It, it didn't have. It, it bit its handler. Um, it didn't have its little venom pouch inside anymore, but it, you know, made the yeah. person bleed. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. I've always wanted to sort of be bitten by a snake, you know, like a little bit, just, just to have the story. Like, you don't want to have it happen. You want to have been bitten by a snake. You don't want to be bitten by a snake. But, um, but has anyone in here been bitten by a snake? You've been bitten by a snake? A rattlesnake? Wow, that's cool. <laughs> See, and you're here and you're fine and you have that story. <laughs> um, but, but the fox, because it's a wild animal, and not meant to be in movies. Um, you know, it, it, did you notice in the movie it had its, its head was tilted like that? Remember that? Um, and it was, that's what made it look weird. And it's, that its trainer was just off out of the frame, like, you know, doing something with a wand or a stick or whatever. You know, and the fox would follow this. Yeah, the fox would follow. So that's why it looked weird. 
I've never told anyone that. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you that now, but... Well, it's interesting because it's that kind of encounter with the wild that at times we expect it to be frightening um, and it's adorable or sweet or tender yeah. and at times we expect it to be neutral and it's brutal and indifferent and yeah. lovely. Well, in real life, the fox, uh, you know, what actually happened to me was this experience I, I had a couple times on the trail, um, which is that, you know, the fox was not afraid of me and the fox just was had this sort of great authority. Uh, the fox was, you know, in his or her, mm -hmm. you know, home. Mm -hmm. And I was the visitor, and the fox was a little bit curious. And just came, you know, walking by me, stopped, looked at me. I looked at it, you know, and was startled. Usually, we're so used to wild animals running from us, you know, except you who got bit. <laughs> but, you know, it was, you know, and so there's this, that it didn't run. Is, is scary that it stood its ground, not in an aggressive way, but just in a way like, I'm here, you're here. And what was really interesting about that moment for me as a person, and then later when I was writing about it, um, because, you know, here again, I decided to write that scene intuitively, meaning I'm going to tell you what happened. I, ha I look at the fox, the fox looks at me. I feel, um, you know, amazed by this moment. And then the fox walks away. And as the fox walks away, I suddenly just yelled after it, mom, mom. Mm. And so I wrote that scene because that's what happened. And then the book comes out and everyone's like, was the fox your mom? You know, <laughs> what does the fox symbolize? And I'm like, what I realized is like, my, the, my real answer is I don't know. I don't know what the fox was. I know that, I know what happened with the fox and what the fox provoked in me. And then later, when I had to answer this question so much, what I figured out was that um, my mom is dead, and yet my relationship with her in some ways continues. In some ways, it's completely ended, and in some ways, it continues. And when you have, when you have a relationship with a dead person, what you have to have is a relationship with somebody who lives in another realm or another world. A realm that, frankly, I don't even believe exists. I don't believe my mom is actually like a spirit watching over us. Um, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe any, any of that. But I believe somehow that I have to have a relationship with my mom that exists in another realm. And in some way, having that connection with that, what, with that wild animal um, that was both about connecting and being in separate realms... Mm -hmm. It's like I crossed into something that we don't normally get to cross into, right? And that's what I think the fox was. And that's why it felt like my mother, mm -hmm. because I had to reach across a divide that was impossible to reach across. But I caught a glimpse of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Just like every once in a while, I catch a glimpse of my mother in real life. How, how catch a glimpse of your mother in real life? Just sometimes, you know, when I said I don't believe my mom's a spirit watching over us, but sometimes, I don't, but it, it, you know, sometimes I'll feel suddenly the presence of my mother, you know? And even though I don't believe in, in, in her actual ex existence, even as a spirit, I believe, but I believe that, that I can feel the presence of my mother mm -hmm. in my life mm -hmm. in ways that aren't quite, you know... Uh, that, that, that I can't explain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. My father died when I was three, and I've always felt that literally there was a part of him 
in me, and I'm maybe the least spiritual person in the room, but um, there is literally a part of film. There is like fifty percent of. Well, it. That, that's true, but I mean, I mean, like um, I hope there's no scientists in the room. They're all. Like, <laughs> I mean, a, a very living part of. Yeah. I yeah. knew. Yeah, like in a in a spirit, like a soul way. Yeah. I got it. I think that leads into our first question, which is actually a really wonderful question. Okay. A few pages into Wild, I was already crying. I felt your story touched me so deeply because it was in part my story. The love and loss you expressed for your mother spoke to my soul, so thank you. My question is, do you have advice for me as a newly pregnant woman raising my child without my mother's presence? Mm. Um... Yeah, well, I can tell you that I'm sorry that, I mean, it's, it never stops being sad that when you have a child and you've lost a parent and that, that child never gets to meet that parent. It's again, it's like that thing of somebody just come to me and said, you're going to suffer all your life about this. It's, it's in some ways just let's not pretend that it's okay that, that your child isn't going to know your mom. It's painful. And yet there are all these ways in my own life um, that's, that, that, my, I mean, my mother's love lives on most probably in my life um, via the ways that I love my kids. I love my kids the way my mother loved me, which is with just such, you know, such a sort of deep, full throttle, high velocity. Much. All exactly. <laughs> that's what my kids would tell you. That's how much, you, you know, and so, and so, you know, and that's a beautiful, powerful thing. You know, that's, that's, maybe that's the real part of like, you know, when you lose somebody, the real part that they still exist is if you, you know, and, and so, you know, there's, there's one category is like doing that through having kids, you know, but in another way, you know, just writing, you know, like creating from that loss, creating something, making something beautiful from the ugliest thing in your life, um, that is like deep, deep, old, wise mama, ancient priestess healing. Um, if you can like make make something beautiful from the ugliest things in your life, um, you you just it's so tremendously life giving, and I have completely dedicated my life to trying to do that. You know, with my writing, mm -hmm. and um, I feel that that has given me so much when it comes to that one. You know, that mother loss. You know, just mm -hmm. creating, whether it be people, really cute little people. Um, <laughs> or, or books. Mm -hmm. yeah. Makes great advice to make beautiful things out of the most beautiful things. Okay, next question. I'm a feminist man who loves women, and that gets me in trouble. How does a man balance his strength with a woman's when surrounded by remarkable women like in this building? <laughs> Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the question? <laughs> How does one balance his strengths with a woman's when surrounded by remarkable women like in this building? How do I find someone I share that power and that to share that power and balance with me? Okay. So All I can say to this feminist, if you're single, I bet I can hook you up tonight. Like, <laughs> I bet we could find somebody in this room for you. Um, you know, I just, I think that, I mean, what, what I, it's such a conflict, it's such an impossible question to answer. You're going to have to help me answer that. 
I mean, my idea, my sort of theory of love is to is to give it. You know, like give it what you have and accept and accept what you what you are capable of receiving. You know, that it's not um, that. I mean, I think this idea of power in a relationship is really connected to this to these old ideas about what you know a woman should be or a man should be or what one partner should be or this partner should be. These power dynamics, whether they're in heterosexual or homosexual or whatever you know, whatever the, the coupling is, this idea of that you're a role rather than an individual, you know? And so I think once you sort of detach yourself, like so many feminists have aspired to do, whether we end up doing it or not, but detaching yourself from this idea of like, what are, what are these old terms, mm -hmm. these old ideas about who we are that, that don't serve us and that don't reflect who we really are. Once you can actually do that, you know, there, it isn't really a question of like, how do we balance our power? When I think of my relationship with my husband, we've been together like 20 years, um, there isn't, you know, he doesn't have to say, well, I'm gonna try to be less powerful than you, or I'm gonna, you need to be less powerful for me. We both say, okay, let us be powerful together. And we are, you know, part of being together, you know, part of deciding to stay together and be a couple is about, um, you know, that you, that, that, that you sort of create more together than you could alone, right? What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think it's it's uh, hard to be, you know, um, a feminist male in the room um, with a lot of really powerful women who are, you know, um, I don't know. But I'm not an advice. Is it? Is I don't know. <laughs> I wish my husband was here. Like, my husband's totally a feminist. I don't know that he experiences it as hard. Um, it depends also what phase you're in of your feminism, and, and the women. I mean, sometimes there is a little, sometimes when people first become feminists, there's a lot of anger and, you know, like, right? You know, a lot of energy. And um, that can be challenging at the beginning, right? Don't you think? Well, the word, I'm just thinking even the word is so contested now, like a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, probably women and men in this audience have trouble with the, you know, the word, so. Does anyone have trouble with the word feminist? No. No? no? Oh my God. Like, now you wouldn't say if you did, now. <laughs> yeah, well, when, you, you when you teach, I mean, I, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of young women in their 20s and 30s don't identify, you know, um, particularly as feminist because it carries so much baggage you know what, 70s no? and white. It's like the genes. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, coming, it's coming back. It's in. No, it's coming through. No, it's, it's the high waisted jeans and feminism. It's like the new, the new thing. No, I mean, it used to, seriously, like, when I was, I mean, 20 years ago, like, people in my generation did not, like, call themselves feminists very easily. Like, you, you were, like, you know, very, I'm, I'm amazed at how mainstream that term has become, actually. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just like on Twitter, it's, it's you know, it, it, but, but right? I mean, don't, are you seeing this? Do you guys agree with this idea? That it's become much more sort of natural for young women to say they're feminists and men too? Yes? And old women and old men, yeah, everyone, yeah. I think it's become, but, but anyway, I think it's, I think that you have to just chill, take a chill pill, feminist man. Um, you know, just like, just love and be loved. And you know, like beautiful, give and take, and you know, and really, and talk about everything, and have lots of sex. <laughs> he 
he's going to do fine. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a little more worried about this. We're starting the podcast. I want to get to this one because I think it's important. Um, I'm so in love with my partner that I feel like we've almost become one person. I've realized that I've lost parts of myself to our relationship, but I don't know if that's a bad thing or just what happens when you bring two lives together. Bits get lost. How long have you been with your partner? 28 years. 28 years. Um, you know, I think one of the questions I have for that person, you know, I mean, I think that if you're at the beginning of a relationship, there can be this, this incredibly intense kind of merging, which is really beautiful and powerful. And, you know, that's the follow-up question I was like, where are you in your relationship? Because what I found, though, is, you know, obviously you can't become one and then have that sustain itself over time. Like, the, have you found over time, it's like, you merge, you come apart, you merge again, <laughs> It's like, that what you're feeling might just be like this super intense mega sparkle super glue love thing which is so awesome like don't worry about it um i think because it won't last <laughs> so, i'm just like you know enjoy uh enjoy yourself um <laughs> but what i mean is even if the relationship lasts lasts this this um you know, this sense of like, I, I don't know where I am and she begins, or, you know, I am. You know, that, that, that will pass. You, you know, one day you will wake up and you'll think, I'm going to go eat a taco by myself. <laughs> right? The particulars of the self have a way of poking up through the, the blob of bliss. Yeah. Um, you share so much of yourself. Do you ever worry that you'll run out of stuff, stories and experiences to share? P.S. I love you. Oh, thank you. Yes, no, I've totally run out of stories. Um, you know, I do, it actually is a thing. A lot of people, um, you know, really want, have encouraged me to keep writing the Dear Sugar column. I do the podcast now, but it's a totally different thing. Obviously, it's not a literary experience. It's it's a conversation with Steve Allman. And a lot of people were like, please go back to writing and doing the Dear Sugar column. And, um, you know, when I stopped writing the column, I really did stop. I thought it was going to be a, a hiatus. Um, but, but even then, I knew that I wasn't going to write it for very much longer if I went back. And the reason I didn't go back is suddenly everything exploded in my life. Um, but even if I had gone back, it would have been just a few more months, and it was because of, not so much that I ran out of stories, but I'd sort of spoken my piece. I'd sort of, um, you know, said everything I could say about the problems of being human. And then after a while, I would start repeating myself, you know, and um, making some of the same mm -hmm. points. Um, but there is this thing, a little bit, where, um, you know, most writers do write, from their wounds. They write about the hardest, ugliest things that have happened to them. And, and that's, you know, I'm sure that I'll return again and again to some of the subject matter I've already written about. But there is a sense um, that I've had as a writer lately that I just think, well, what next? And what stories do I have to tell? And also, what what is worth telling? Like, a lot of people have said to me, oh, gosh, you know, you should write about this whole experience you had, like, in Hollywood. And 
with fame and like, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it's really kind of interesting because, um, you know, I always have to feel like I have something to say about something before I can write about it. And so I don't feel ready to write about this experience I've had. But maybe, you know, 10 years out, I will. And so part of it is like, we forget that we're always making new stories. We're always, you know, right? New things are happening to us. And, and sometimes too, being, being ready to be open about them requires the passage of time. You know, the, one of the, the things people feel like, I share so much of my life, I do. And yet there, there are all these parts of my life that I haven't written about, actually. And I haven't written about for reasons that have to do with privacy, with not wanting to hurt certain other people in my life, not feeling ready to tell certain stories about like my marriage or my mothering or my friendships or my siblings. And all of those things, you know, are ahead. So rest assured, all the fucked up things that are happening to me now, <laughs> 20 years from now, you'll read all about it. There's a question about what you're too scared to write. Um, I'm too scared. There, there are stories that I could tell that would be very, I mean, that are just really, really rich and ripe um, for literature that I wouldn't tell because they would hurt us, the people's feelings. And so I won't write those stories until that's, you know, I mean, I won't write those stories. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I understand this question. Um, reading Tiny Beautiful Things was an emotional roller coaster. I often wondered what happened next. I think the writer means in the story of the oh, person as people. Yeah. How do you cope with sending responses to a person whose story has touched you without knowing how their story ends? Mm. Like, do you ever wonder? You gave sort of tough advice. Oh, like the advice you gave <laughs> to um, what's her name, Alyssa B. or something. Who Alyssa was, Yeah. Yeah. That was a famous one. Yeah. Um, did we ever find out, like, did she survive your advice? Or? Well, Alyssa, I mean, Alyssa's one of the few, I mean, she's the only letter writer who, who, her name is actually on the letter, her real name. So, you know, she's somebody I can track. You know, I met her after I wrote that column, but, and she's doing fine, she lives in New York and writing and writing like a motherfucker. And, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I do find out, first of all, the first piece of that question is, does it feel, is it hard sometimes to put out there, um, you know, my reply and then not knowing what's going to happen. And also on the podcast, you know. Um, and and I, yes and no. I mean, what I always think is like, I hope we were helpful or I hope I was helpful in my response. And then in about a half the cases, people do come back to me. You know, they'll write to me again. Um, some people, like I've tracked them over many years. Um, they've, they've, you know, they come to my events. Uh, there's this guy... Uh, there's the, the, the column in Tiny Beautiful Things, Like an Iron Bell, this guy Johnny, he wrote to me and he's, those of you who know that column, he's like, you know, what, you know, I, I'm sort of in this relationship and I'm sort of in love, you know, I, I don't want to say I love her because then she's going to get all crazy and serious. And, and, um, and I was like, don't be such a pussy, say you love her. And, um, and, 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 and I basically, he kind of did. And um, so I write that letter and, um, you know, it, a year passes and I, and Tiny Beautiful Things, the book came out um, more than a year passed. And I was at an event at a book signing and this, 
you always know that the people, the most interesting and strange and sometimes scary people are the ones who keep getting into the back of the line because they want to they be the last one to talk to. Um, they don't want to be rushed. And um, so I noticed this, this cute sort of bearded guy um, keeps getting into the back of the line and, and he gets up to me and, and he's, I'm like, hi. And he says, I'm Johnny. And I was like, hi, Johnny, how are you tonight? And he's like, no, I'm Johnny. And I was like, oh my God, Johnny. He's like, and I want you to meet my girlfriend. You know, and it was like, this, this. And she's like, he read your column and got in his truck and drove to me and said he loved me, you know. And then now, then they were like, then I saw them again, they're engaged, and then they're married, and, you know, everything's, you know, going swimmingly for Johnny. Um, and all because of me. <laughs> and, um, you know, other people, I've had other stories like that. I've met, um, like, the guy, I wonder if he's even here tonight. Is anyone here who wrote me a letter? The guy who wrote um, the letter to me. Uh, in the column, the ghost ship that didn't carry us, about like, should he have a baby or not? <laughs> he showed up with his daughter on his hip <laughs> one night, which was cool. All kinds of things like that have happened. <laughs> Beautiful, cool things. Nothing gnarly and ugly. Um, nobody who's said, um, you know, you completely screwed me up. Because they, they've all committed suicide, of course. So. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that I haven't given bad advice. I just mean that I've not heard any bad stories. Have I messed anyone up in this room? I think it's amazing advice. I mean, it's, it's, it's such great advice. And I think, how do you know what you know? But I think the answer is um, maybe in the things we've talked about and in your, in your books, the way you perceive the world is just so sharp and true. But what were you going to say? But you know it too. I mean, what I know is that you know it. You know the same thing I know. If you're willing to be honest with yourself about what you know, and I think that the, you know that's one of the things I always try to do in a letter. It, it, I mean, sadly, I think this gets lost on the podcast a little bit. Um, but in my letters, when I would write the letter, you know, write responses, I would often use the language that was given to me by the letter writer mm. to show them what they already know. I would always say, "This is what you told me." And so I'm showing you what you right. said. And this is connected to this very first point I was trying to make, which is, you know, when you're writing about yourself, is, is you think you know what you know, but you actually don't know. Like, you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. I sound like Donald Trump right. now. But, um, <laughs> but, but what's interesting is one of, writing is one of the few things that requires you to find out the unknowable in your life. Like it asks you, if you're doing it right, it asks you to delve into the territory, which is in that, that little, you know, sort of the unknowable that is willing to be known if you dig, you know? And I guess that happens in therapy and that happens in writing. And so I think that one of the things I try to do in those Dear Sugar Letters is to say to people, you know, this is, you know, the answer is within. Like it's not me bestowing some truth or some wisdom on you. You, you possess the wisdom. You know, and one of the first, um, when I came out of Sugar in San Francisco, actually, 
Um, was anyone at that coming out party on Valentine's Day? Yay! <laughs> One of the things I talked about was, you know, my, my kids, um, when they were a little bit younger, I would always read to them. You know, I still read to them, but I mean, you get these like sort of, uh, you know, sort of storybook abridged versions of a lot of great books, but I would often like read them the whole book. And um, when I was a kid, um, I never read like the whole book of The Wizard of Oz. I only saw the movie. And so my kids watched the movie. And then I was like, you know, we're going to read this whole book. So I read them the whole book. And it ends up it's a really interesting book, like the whole Wizard of Oz. Multiple and, um, volumes. Yes, it's like very dark and terrible and interesting. And, and so many bigger, more things happened to Dorothy. Right. Um, but I was so struck by um, the thing that happened at the end. And I felt like this is an expression of everything that I think I was trying to do is sugar, trying to say is sugar. Um, and that is, so in the, in the book, um, there's, you know, it's not ru red, ruby, shiny slippers, it's sil they're silver, you know. And Dorothy is wearing them, and she goes through all these trials and tribulations, you know, in the book. And at the very end, she runs into Glenda the Good Witch, and, um, and Dorothy's just like, I'm never gonna get home. I'm just completely, I'm screwed and I'll never get back to Kansas. And Glenda's like, oh, well, like, why didn't you mention it? Like, you just have to, like, you know, click your heels together with those shoes. And um, Dorothy was like, holy cats, you know, like, who knew, you know? And thank you, you know, thank you for bestowing this magic power on the shoes, Glenda the Good Witch. And Glenda says, no, 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 Dorothy, you, you, um, you always had, the, the, you always had that power. You just didn't know it. Like, it was there all along. And that's the beauty of, I think, like, the rite of passage, mm -hmm. is you are not actually going out there to find power that's somewhere else. You're actually going out there to find the power that you already have. And that's right. That's true. And so I think that, you know, I think that that's, so much about like whenever we are lost or confused or we don't know what to do or we don't know what the way forward it's 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 within you know it's like being brave enough to sort of seek that wisdom within and then live out what you find there um, to click those silver shoes together is the way to get home mm -hmm. the ones you're already wearing mm -hmm. well it's just been such a pleasure having this intimate Thank talk thanks guys 1300 people thank you You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs. <laughs>